You're listening to audio from Citizens Church in Birmingham, Alabama. If you'd like to learn more about Citizens, you can visit our website at citizensbhm.com. So a lawyer who would be an expert in the Old Testament law, that first part of the Bible, and he's probably working as a lawyer in his local community since religion and the law were kind of one and the same. This lawyer, he has a question. And he says, and behold, a lawyer stood up to put him, Jesus, to the test, saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And the question is insincere. It literally says he's doing it to put Jesus to the test. He's hoping Jesus will mess up. He's hoping Jesus will answer wrong. He's hoping Jesus will say something unexpected so he can go, aha, That's not what the Old Testament says. Gotcha, Jesus. But even though his question is insincere, it doesn't negate or change the seriousness of the question. It's the biggest question there is. Specifically, how do we end up in heaven? How do we get eternal life with God? You don't have to live very long in this world to notice things aren't going so great. That things are broken out there, but also broken in here. You don't have to live that long. And you don't have to live that long to know that everyone dies. Everyone. That we start to wonder what happens after we die. Because I believe all humans, we have this yearning for an afterlife, a pleasant one, Will it come true? If heaven's a place and a real place, how do I inherit it or receive it or get to it? So Jesus patiently answers an insincere question with a sincere but probing question. Verse 26, and Jesus said to the lawyer, what is written in the law? How do you read it? He sincerely asks, if this is your whole profession, this is your whole life, you're the lawyer, you're the scribe who copies down the law day and night and helps people interpret and helps people know, how do you read it? You tell me. And suddenly God has flipped the test. The very God of God is asking a lawyer, eyeball to eyeball, what do you think? And the lawyer recites Deuteronomy 6 and 19 from heart. It's a part of what all good Jews would know as part of the Shema. And the Shema is the Hebrew word for hear. It comes from Deuteronomy 6. It says, hear, O Israel, that your Lord, your God is one. And it started this prayer slash recitation of scripture that would be a part of every single local synagogue service every week. And for many Jews, both then and now, it's spoken every morning and evening. This would be the prayer of this man's heart. It would be a huge part of his identity. And he quotes from the Shema prayer, Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19 kind of mashed together. And the lawyer answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. And the lawyer's right. 
Jesus congratulates him. But Jesus also adds, do this and you will live. You're right. So do it. And then you'll live. The emphasis on faith that leads to immediate consequential action is a common sentiment throughout the Bible and even right here in Deuteronomy 6. And I don't know how long the pause is here. I don't know how long maybe a silence passes or a moment passes, but you can imagine Jesus has about 100 or so followers right now. There's probably a crowd in this town of maybe another 100 so people. The crowd is hopeful. The crowd is anxious. The crowd might be a little scared of everything going on. The crowd might be hoping to trap Jesus. Some are hoping to meet Jesus. There's a lot going on, but the lawyer pauses and he can't let it go. Perhaps for the first time in this lawyer's life, even though maybe he's been reciting this as his, maybe his first words, the Shema, as a good Jewish boy, for the first time in his life, he seems to feel the weight to love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, if that's what it takes to be saved, if that's what it takes to gain eternal life, then eternal life's impossible. To take it past the sentimental to an actual thing to obey, there's no one who can honestly say they've loved God at all times and always in every situation all the time. There's no way because we've all sinned. We know this even from this week. If you take an honest look at every moment of the week, every thought of your heart where sin is not just what you do and say, but even what you think, you're not coming up clean. You're going to be breaking this law. And the Bible affirms this in the Old Testament. The Bible affirms this in the New Testament. The words of Jesus would affirm this. In fact, from Genesis 3 on in the Bible, people have sinned by failing to love God with all their heart. Romans 3.23 puts it this way, that all have fallen short of the glorious standard of God, of loving God and our neighbor. And this is what the law, the teachings of the Old Testament, like Deuteronomy 6, this is what the law should do. Look, the law does three things for us. This is why God gave it. First, the law shows us the holiness of God. It shows us a God who's worthy of our full devotion. He's creator. We're creation. He sees a God who's perfect and loving and good and created all things in the universe. Nothing existed before God. First, the law is to show us up. There's a God. But in reading the law, any honest reading, it shows us we're not holy, we sin, and we do not obey the law. We may obey a little bit or sometimes or this or that, but the law shows us God, but then shows us a mirror to ourselves of, well, I'm not God, and I'm not a faithful follower of God. And so the law has a third function, and this is all important. To miss this function means to miss it all. The law shows us our need for a savior from our sins. It shows us God, it shows us us, and it begs who can fulfill the law? Who can make me right with God? 
who can solve the problem of God's holiness or the opportunity of his holiness and the problem of our sin. The law was not meant to save, but to point us to a savior. Remember, Jesus said, we'll do it. And Jesus knows he has not, because no man has. So the lawyer could have asked a very different next question. He should have asked something like this. How can I, Lord? How can anyone be saved? For I have not loved God or my neighbor perfectly. Remember, this guy's a lawyer. All he does is deal with human sinning. He is acquainted. He has to write down their sins and talk about them and figure out a resolution. This is a guy who's dealing with this stuff all day long. He should have said, yeah, if I have to do the Shema for eternal life, we got a problem. And you know what Jesus would have responded if he asked that? Because he gets asked this question kind of throughout the Gospel of Luke over and over. Different folks honestly ask about salvation. Listen to what our Savior says about salvation. Luke 5. And Jesus answered those. Those who are well have no need of a physician or doctor, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners to repentance. Jesus is here to save sinners. If you find that you cannot love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, good news. We got a Savior who's here to save people who know they can't keep the law. Luke 18, he's asked a similar question. Then who can be saved? And Jesus said, what's impossible with man is possible with God. Jesus highlights, I know, friend. I know you can't save yourself. That's why I'm here. I'm here to do something that's impossible without Jesus, no matter how good you are, no matter what you, what you believe, no matter any of these things, no matter where your family's from. I'm here to do the impossible to save sinners. Luke 19, he gets asked again, and Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because this man who's a notorious sinner in the story, maybe the baddest man around, he too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man, that's Jesus' title for himself, for Jesus came to seek and save the lost. Jesus calls sinners who believe in him the sons of Abraham. He says, if you believe in Jesus, now you're part of the promised family of the whole Bible. You're not an outsider any longer. You're the insider of the insider for all who believe. Jesus doesn't reject sinners, those who fail to love God and neighbor. In fact, he expects us. That's why he came. Jesus isn't here to give us more law, but rather to give us a gospel that Jesus saves all who put their faith in them. This is what the lawyer should have done. He had a golden opportunity to hear from God, eyeball to eyeball, how to inherit eternal life. But what's he do? Instead of seeing his sin and need for a savior, the lawyer senses his guilt. And like a good lawyer, he tries to minimize his liability. He tries to justify his failures in love by limiting who deserves his love or qualifies for his love. Verse 29. And he, the lawyer, the lawyer, just justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? The word justify might be new to you. 
When justify is used in the Bible, theologically, in the Bible, justify means to be made right in the sight of God. To justify self, to prove yourself, to be made right in the sight of God. The lawyer feels his lack, and he wants to be made right before God. So follow the lawyer's logic here. The love it, to love God with all of your being sounds a bit subjective. To love him with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, that sounds a bit subjective. So the lawyer latches onto the other part. Loving other people feels a bit more objective. He can love another person. The other person could affirm that they have been loved. So the lawyer tries to limit the circle of folks he has to love. He's like, if I can get it down to a manageable size of who's my neighbor, then look, maybe it can just be my family, maybe just my synagogue, maybe just a, a coworker, maybe just my clients. Then the lawyer can prove himself obedient to God and worthy of eternal life. This is the lawyer's logic. And I gotta be honest, someone better call up Alex Shinara. Someone better call him, I got a guy. This lawyer's ripe for the hiring. We got a top flight lawyer here. He's distracting from the bigger problems, picking out the little problem, and then proving how he's the solution to the little problem that he can love a neighbor. Just if you define it small enough, maybe. We got a lawyer working the angles on the ultimate judge in God. The lawyer's justifying is called self-righteousness. Self-righteousness is an attempt to build a righteousness apart from God to save ourselves. To build up a spiritual resume, a good deeds resume, a character resume to say, look, God, I am righteous. Approve of me. That's what self-righteousness is. But no matter our good deeds, no matter our good character, we're never going to equal the righteousness of God. We're just not. However, we try to save ourselves, we try to do it by limiting God's law to what we think we can obey. That's too hard. Loving God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Okay, so tell me about the neighbor part and let's get that down to a manageable size. But justifying ourselves doesn't work. We don't get to downgrade God's holy law to pick out how we will be accepted by God. That's like showing up to Olympics for the 100 meter dash and being like, I'm going to lose this one. What if I just do a 30-meter dash? What if I just shorten it by 70 and take off? We might still lose. Those, those folks are fast. But that doesn't work. You can't just run the 30 meters. You can't limit down the neighbor. And that's what Jesus will show him. Breaking the law at all is too much. James 2.10 puts it this way. It says, it says, to break the law even once means we've broken all all of God's law. We move from category that we're just a lawbreaker. So to break it in one place means we are guilty. We're guilty before God. Romans 3.20 is so explicit. I love this chapter of the Bible. Look what it says. For the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his God's sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The law was meant to show you your sin, not save you. The lawyer is responding to the law wrongly. He sees a holy God 
He sees his sin to some level, but instead of seeking Jesus, he's seeking his own justification to be made right by God by himself because the lawyer's still hung up on what he can do to inherit eternal life, even as he starts asking about the neighbor. Look at our Jesus. Does he yell at him? Is he mean? No, Jesus is patient and gentle even to people testing him. He's patient and gentle to tell him a story that actually answers both questions. Look at verse 30. Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. A lot of people use this road. It was the quickest way to get from Jerusalem back to Jericho where a lot of people lived. It'd be like heading out to the suburbs and working downtown and heading out to the suburbs after work. It's a 17-mile journey. You would go down from Jerusalem about 3,000 feet over the 17 miles. So it was this slope down, but it was actually this curvy slope down with limestone everywhere. So the road was kind of carved into the limestone at places, which unfortunately made it full of ridges and embankments, aka perfect for an ambush. And this had been happening for centuries. It actually was happening all the way into the last century in Israel. Highway robbers, the tools evolved, but this has been a notorious place of crime and pain forever. People very rarely would walk it alone because they knew bad things might happen. So when the crowd hears that this man is on the road, they already know the story is going to end poorly. They already know there's like a little boy walking off into the woods and the woods are full of wolves. And sadly, the man is brutalized. He's left for dead. But look, hope arrives, verse 31. Now by chance, how lucky is this man? A priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, oh, yeah, actually he passed by on the other side. Verse 32, likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and he saw him, he didn't miss him, he sees him, and then chooses to get on the other side of the road. In Israel's culture, the priest was like the most holy guy who did the priestly stuff. He was a descendant of Aaron from Exodus. Then came the Levites and the tribe of Levi who assisted these priests at the temple and neither stops. His hope just kind of walks by. Either they don't care, they feel like they're too busy, They don't want to get involved. Maybe they're scared themselves or just callous. We're not told. They're likely walking home from work, working in Jerusalem, so it's not a matter of ritual cleanliness. They just don't care. And in the ranking of respectability in Israel, there were the priests, there were the Levites, then there was the Israelite, just the common, normal citizen of Israel. And the audience hearing the story is thinking about what's probably going to happen next, right? They're thinking it through, and they're probably thinking, wow, Jesus is so radical. This guy, this is a real Galilee guy. The ordinary Israelite is going to come save this man. You just wait. Jesus is our guy. 
Just an ordinary Israelite, guy just like him from Galilee, a, a guy working in stone cutting or carpenter work. He's gonna be the hero. This is gonna turn out great. Maybe they'll call the story the parable of the ordinary good Israelite one day. So imagine their shock when it's not an Israelite, but a Samaritan that saves. Samaritans generally hated the Jews, and the Jews generally hated the Samaritans. This strife and violence had gone on from centuries back and forth. It was ethnic, it was religious, it was political, and boy, it was ugly. Some of the stories in the history books are even bizarre sounding. They're so petty and mean and just inciting one another. And they generally wouldn't even speak to each other and avoided one another. So when they hear there's a Samaritan entering the story, they're probably thinking, oh no, the Samaritan's gonna bash his head in with a rock and finish him. Cover the kid's ears. It's about to get real. Verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. The Greek word there, the Greek word there is splagizomai, which means moved in the guts. The kind of compassion where you can't look away. When you see that heartbreaking photograph in the news and suddenly you're transported to Ukraine or wherever or, and you just have a moment. He went to him. He bound up his wounds. He pouring oil and wine. Oil was used to rub on abrasions and kind of clean off the dirt. The wine was used as a disinfectant of the, of the alcohol content. Then he set him on his own animal. He brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day, he spent the night at this inn take care and form. The next day, he took out two denarii. That's two full days of wages. It would be equivalent of hundreds of dollars today. And gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever you, more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. The Samaritan doesn't hit him with a rock. Instead, he drops everything and comes to this dying man's aid. And notice how he cares. It shows us how we can care for a neighbor. This is infinitely practical. Look at this. Caring for a neighbor, if we want to follow how the Samaritan goes, we go to the need. He went to him. We help with the immediate need. He bound up his wounds. We direct to further help. A lot of the situations, it's not saying you have to be God and fix everything all at once. You can't do it anyways. But you can get people to the next point of help, care, and words and actions. He took care of them through the night. And then the biggest one, the willingness to sacrifice our time, our money, our self-importance, our plans. If you want to be a neighbor to someone, this isn't a manual, but it's a pretty good model. It's a pretty good start of how to help somebody, whether they're half dead or just having a really hard time today. This is a great place to start the love of your neighbor, to ask the help hold that baby when parents need to get some sleep, to waste time with someone you know who is hurting to let their soul breathe to pursue people at work or church who are less social and, and awkward, and maybe, maybe they're unpopular at work and they sit alone. Say, so I, I want to go to the need. Everyone needs friends. 
They don't have to be half dead to qualify for your help. Notice the forgotten. Notice the hurting. Notice the poor. Notice the orphan. And move towards them. The crowd is still probably reeling that the bad guy of their culture is actually the hero in Jesus' story. And when Jesus reframes the lawyer's question from who is my neighbor to who has been a neighbor, verse 36, listen here. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the lawyer said, the one who showed mercy. Jesus says that phrase again. You go and do it. Do likewise. Jesus reframes the whole question to kind of the God view of the situation. Kind of this over narrator who's looking down and a man in a puddle of his own blood saying, and who of everyone in the story has become this man's neighbor and who has simply refused to love him? And neighboring here, in Jesus' word, seems more like a condition of our heart and hands than of geographic proximity. It's not about how close you are to someone. It's about a matter of the heart to even see and engage with them. And Jesus keeps this impossible bar so high again, saying, go and do it. The emphasis on a faith that acts. Listen, church, there is no limit on who is our neighbor. The moment we start limiting who our neighbor is, we are departing from the teachings of the Bible. Our neighbor is anyone who's in need. Our neighbor is anyone who's in our path, regardless of their culture, regardless of their ethnicity, regardless of their religion, regardless of their politics, regardless of their wealth. And when Jesus is your religion, you can be a help regardless of your background. That if you see the need, then you are elected, you are empowered to go love a person with what you got. That man's not a magician of the Samaritan. He had a donkey, he had some oil wine, he had at least two denarii, and he used what he had to get this man where he needed to go to love him. And this is a hard question. For us, fellow Birmingham citizens, I want us to carefully hear it and carefully think. Have you chosen by your lifestyle choices to cross to the other side of the road like the priest and the Levite? Have you made choices to make sure you don't encounter anyone in desperate need? Have you insulated your life with choices about where you live, work, play, schooling, social group, making yourself very busy to make sure no needy people can get close enough to bother you? There's a lot of ways to try to define neighbor pretty narrowly, just like the lawyer. If Christians had loved well and been a neighbor, a lot of the pain in Birmingham could have been avoided. I believe Christians loving our neighbor in every neighborhood in Birmingham is the best future of Birmingham. Amen?
And that's why. That's why we do what we do. That's why we're cultivating a diverse community of disciples who belong to Jesus and seek the good of Birmingham. Because we believe the best future of Birmingham is neighbors loving them each other and not defining neighbor narrowly. That that's the hope of God. That's the command of God. That's the work of God. That is a mission big enough that's worth being a member, that's worth serving, that's worth giving, worth sweating and sacrifice, maybe even living and bleeding for. Because that's the best future for the kingdom of God and all citizens of Birmingham. Is it the citizens of citizens and the citizens of our, our, of our city would say, I am committed to loving my neighbor to my own hurt, to my own sacrifice. The story answers question two. Who is my neighbor? Really clearly. Jesus embeds the answer, though, to the first question. How do I inherit eternal life? Well, that answer is in the story too. On a human level, we probably see shades of the priest, shades of the Levite, shades of the Samaritan in us and everyone around us. Different behaviors that we could say, look, I'm a mixed bag of good and bad. I can identify with those folks in the story pretty easy. Yet theologically or before God, we're not the Samaritan in the story. We're the guy in the ditch. Before God, we're the guy in the ditch. Think about it. No one can keep the law. Therefore, we are half dead and guilty of sin. That means we're in great trouble on the road of life. We're in the threat of bleeding out. Ephesians 2 says we're the walking dead. It describes us like spiritual zombies that are still living and moving, but are dead inside. It's like a guy in a ditch. So how do we receive eternal life? Well, we know it's not by pretending to keep the law, by running our 30 meters, because we know we can't do the 100 meters. We know creating a self-righteous resume isn't going to work either. We can never equal up to the righteousness of God. Rather, we receive eternal life from Jesus, who's our true neighbor. He's the great Savior, better than any good Samaritan. He is the one. He's the Samaritan who picks us up out of the ditch because we cannot save ourselves. We cannot justify ourselves. We're not getting out of the ditch on our own. We're just gonna bleed out. We need a savior or we're not gonna make it. Jesus can and does save sinners. That's his mission then, that's his mission now. And notice, as much good as the Samaritan does, as beautiful as the story is about mercy, Jesus does what the Samaritan, no matter how good he is, could never do. Because Jesus does more than bind us up. Jesus does more than help you get better. To be honest, Jesus takes our place. Notice the text. Go back to verse 30. You can breeze over it, but it's all right here. Look what it says about the guy in the ditch. And he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him, and departed, leaving him all alone, leaving him half dead. Church, does this remind you of anybody? Jesus falls among robbers at the cross. They're crucified on his left and right, and they rob his literal clothes. 
Jesus is stripped naked. Jesus is beaten and whipped. Jesus is left alone by almost all family, friends, and followers. Jesus is left on a cross to die while the priests and the Levites quite literally pass by in Jerusalem. That's how Jesus saves us. He does more than just pull us out of the ditch. He gets in the ditch in our place. That's how redemption works. That's how justification works. On the cross, that's what's happening. God is both the just and the justifier. He holds the whole world accountable for sin. We want a just God who holds people accountable for robbing and beating and killing and doing all these horrible things. Yet God himself takes the penalty for our sin. That's by his death on the cross that Jesus becomes both just and justifier. He's the one who keeps the law. He's the one who loves God with all of his heart, mind, soul, and strength and loves his neighbor as himself to the very bitter end. He's the one who becomes a substitute for us. We don't make ourselves right with God. Instead, Jesus justifies us and makes us right by God by his sacrifice. That's why we're obsessed with the gospel, obsessed with the cross, obsessed with what Jesus does, because he's the key that locks and unlocks every door. He's the one. We're the guy in the ditch, and Jesus says, I'm getting in the ditch for you. I'm not getting you to the end. I'm getting you all the way home. Your hope in life and death is Jesus and nothing less. It's not your works of a spiritual resume, but rather Jesus' spiritual resume of his perfect life, his death for us, and then his resurrection for the dead to show that sin, death, and devil didn't win, that it worked, that the payment for sin was accepted, that our account has gone to zero, but better than zero, we actually get Jesus' resume to become one of those sons of Abraham, to become part of God's families, to be accepted as a son and daughter, not on the basis of your works, but on Jesus, he's the guy in the ditch for you, for me. The law cannot save you. Your works cannot save you, but the gospel sure can. Jesus' works, the life, death, and resurrection sure will. We receive eternal life because of what Jesus has done, not what we do. And when that sinks in, it is believed, that's what it means to be saved. To put all of your hope in life and death, not on ourselves. Because if we take an honest look, we're never going to measure up. But to put all of our hope in life and death on Jesus, a substitute for us. We deserve the ditch for our sin, yet Jesus takes our place. So the question of how do we end up in heaven? How do we have eternal life with God? The answer, Christianity just flips the question. It's not how I get to heaven. It's how does God rescue me? It puts Jesus at the center of the equation, not us. Jesus becomes the guy in the ditch for us. Jesus is the true neighbor we all need. When you begin to follow a God that saves Suddenly, becoming a neighbor to those in need doesn't seem impossible. Instead, it seems like the most logical thing in the world. Why would I not want to help others the same way God has helped me? If you just want to say, I just want to do good deeds, eventually you will become self-righteous. You know how you know you're self-righteous? When something bad happens to you and you say, I don't deserve this. Look at my resume. How dare this happen to me? That's the check. 
until you have been brought out of the ditch by Christ, it's gonna be tough to ever do a good deed from the heart. Jesus is the guy in the ditch for you. That's how God brings you to heaven. That's how eternal life is inherited. I urge you, put your faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins today and begin to follow him with all of your life. 